This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more Rand analysis, reports, and commentary on issues at the forefront of today's policy debate, visit www.rand.org. Good morning, everybody. Uh, today's briefing is being recorded. A video will be available online at www.rand.org, or you can listen to today's discussion by subscribing to Rand's Congressional Briefing Series podcast on iTunes. Uh, welcome to this Rand Congressional Briefing. I'm Wynne Burkle, and I head up the uh, Rand's Corporation's Office of Congressional Relations here in Washington, D.C. Uh, let me tell you briefly about Rand. Uh, the Rand Corporation is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Rand focuses on the issues that matter most, such as health, education, national security, international affairs, law, business, the environment, and more. As a nonpartisan organization, RAND operates independent of political and commercial pressures. We serve the public interest by helping lawmakers reach informed decisions on the nation's pressing challenges. RAND disseminates its findings and recommendations as widely as possible to benefit the public good. You can find more than 10,000 RAND reports and commentary available online free at www.rand.org. This morning, you'll hear from Dr. Art Kellerman, who is Vice President and Director of RAND Health, regarding the rising cost of health care, how it affects the American family, and what we get, or more precisely, do not get for those increasing costs. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about Art before I introduce him. Art, who holds the Paul O'Neill Alcoa Chair in Policy Analysis at RAND, was, prior to RAND, a professor of emergency medicine and public health at the Emory School of Medicine in Atlanta. He founded Emory's Department of Emergency Medicine and served as its first chair from 1999 to 2007. He established the Emory Center for Injury Control and holds excellence in science awards from both the Society for Academic Emergency Medicine and the American Public Health uh, Association. Uh, elected to the Institute of Medicine, IOM, in 1999, uh, he co-chaired the IOM Committee on the Consequences of Uninsurance, which issued six reports on this topic between 2001 and 2004. He also served on the IOM's Committee on the Future of Emergency Care in the U.S. Health System and the Committee uh, on the Effectiveness of National Biosurveillance bio Systems, BioWatch, and the Public Health System. As an RWJF, or Robert Wood Johnson Health Policy Fellow uh, in 06 and 07, uh, Kellerman worked for the professional staff on the Committee on, on, on Oversight and Government Reform in the U.S. House of Representatives, a clinician and researcher. He practiced and taught emergency medicine for more than 25 years in public teaching hospitals in Seattle, Washington, Memphis, Tennessee, and Atlanta, Georgia. And let me turn it over to Mark Kellerman. Thanks, sir. Thank you, Wynn. As he said, first of all, I didn't always dress this way. Uh, I was, in fact, a practicing ER doc for a quarter century and worked on frontline healthcare systems in Seattle, Washington, Memphis, Tennessee, and Atlanta. Uh, and also, for one year, was one of you as a congressional staffer. So in contrast to those grumpy people who visit you every day and have, want something, I know how hard you work. And I know how dedicated all of you are and how challenging this place is. And trust me, if you haven't been in your shoes, I don't think most people have a clue uh, what you do. The healthcare system in this picture sort of depicts this um, is complex. It is incredible capabilities. And for most Americans, it is also pretty scary. And I think that for many, many years, we in the United States 
have embraced and taken great pride in having what we have said to one another, the finest healthcare system on earth. A struggling infant, somebody with multi-organ failure, someone who needs the most sophisticated surgery. There is no nation on earth that can touch us. But our system fails too many too often. And one thing's for sure, it costs way too much. Whether or not we in fact have the finest healthcare system is debatable, quite honestly. But no one can take issue with the fact that we have the most expensive healthcare system on earth by a long shot, both in per capita spending as well as as a percentage of GDP. No one in the world remotely comes close to the United States in terms of health spending. And worse than that, we're pulling away from the pack. The gap between us and other high-income countries gets wider and wider every year as we put more and more of our GDP into healthcare, healthcare delivery, healthcare spending. And as all of you know, it's having immense consequences for our country, for the federal budget, for American business, and as you'll see in a minute, for the take-home pay and the financial wherewithal of average American families. This is really having an impact. We know over the last 10 years that when you look at employer-sponsored health insurance and American business is still the bedrock of health insurance in the United States for most Americans, the cost to an average employer of covering an individual worker or family coverage has more than doubled in the last 10 years. So has the out-of-pocket premiums paid by those workers, either for individual coverage or for family coverage. Now, this slide, which was produced by Kaiser Family Foundation a few years ago, is already out of date. I'm sure many of you know just in the past few days, Kaiser has issued their newest statistics, and it is now costing an eye-popping $15,000 a year for premiums for basic family coverage through employment-sponsored health insurance. And these are typically healthier families than most families in the United States. And it is anticipated, in fact, it was reported that last year, one of the worst years in recent memory for the economy, we are not technically in recession, but clearly we're struggling and millions of Americans are hurting and health insurance premiums for employment-sponsored health insurance went up an eye-popping 9%. As we said in Georgia, where I spent much of my life, that dog won't hunt. Part of the problem, though, is that the average American family doesn't understand just how much they're spending, how much health care cost is bleeding out of their family income. Now, when an American family goes to the gas station, pulls up to the pump, they can tell right away what they're paying. And when they walk in and get a burger, they can tell right away what they're paying. They know what the impact of that, those purchases are going to have on their bottom line. That is not necessarily true when it comes to health care. And I've got two big messages to impart on you based on an analysis that came out on health affairs last month to help make that clear to you and to your boss and to your office as you all try to get your hands around this, because as long as average American families think, well, health care costs a lot, 2.5 trillion a year. Now, that is a gigantic number, but the average American has a hard time. Once you get to illion, it all starts to sound the same. Million, billion, trillion, they're all relatively short, couple of syllables. 
except we know that zeros matter. Zeros matter enormously. But there's a certain point where for an average American your eyes glaze over. And besides, it's just sort of somebody else is picking up the tab. Well, no, actually, we all are. And so what David Auerbach, a colleague of mine at RAND who used to work at the CBO, and we were happy to, to get, bring him on board recently, and I did, was we tried to take that $2.5 trillion a year and take it down to a level that matters to an individual voter, to a breadwinner, to parents, and say, what is the impact on your bottom line of healthcare spending growth in this country, and what has it done to your ability to make decisions about what you and your family need and where you want to direct your money in the last 10 years alone. So that was the basic premise for this analysis. Now, one of the most important lessons here is that 10 years ago and today, most families don't see, don't realize how much they're actually paying. First of all, a typical family understands quite clearly when they go to the drugstore or when they walk in to see their doc and they say, that'll be a $25 or a $50 copay, or this emergency apartment visit, you need to pay $100, or that prescription will cost you X. That's out of pocket. They can relate to that like the burger or the gas pump. And in, in 2009, that number, my eyes aren't that good. I'm gonna have to look at my own paper here from the screen was basically around $85. Now, on top of that, so, so first, I'm sorry, they understand their insurance premium that they're paying every month out of their check, because they can see that in their stub. And then they can understand the out-of-pocket healthcare spending. But that's the only the part that's above the waterline. There's more spending that takes place beneath the waterline that is not so readily apparent to most families. The third big chunk of money is the premium that their employer is paying towards their health insurance. Now, a lot of working folks think that's what my employer is contributing or donating to help me have health insurance. It is a benefit. But what most economists will tell you, and most economists agree, it's another way of getting valuable workers to come to my company versus go to your company. And if I was not providing health insurance, that money would likely be coming to you in the form of higher wages. So in effect, employers are holding back some of your earnings, buying your health insurance with it, and both you and your employer get a tax break, which means ultimately the government takes in less money to support this transaction because there's a lot of social value from it. So these premiums aren't free. They're in fact coming out of the bottom line of that family, albeit in a tax advantage way. The fourth way that families pay is through taxes. Because in fact, state government puts money into Medicaid, the state health department, and other health-related programs, and certainly, as all of you know, the federal government puts substantial money into healthcare through Medicare, through the federal contributions to Medicaid, through federal public health service agencies like CDC and NIH and others, in many, many different ways. So a good chunk, roughly 20% of our taxes go to pay for public sector funding of healthcare in the United States. That was the picture in 1999. Look what happened in just 10 years. Both visible and invisible spending grew dramatically for an average American family. First of all, that family health insurance premium more than doubled. That monthly bite out of a family's paycheck that they can see on their stub. Out-of-pocket spending nearly doubled as well because more, there are higher co-pays now, higher deductibles, 
And while there are still pharmacy benefits in many employer-sponsored programs, out-of-pocket spending also increased. But the real action was occurring again below the waterline, below the surface. A huge jump in the cost to American businesses for their contribution or the employees part of their paycheck going to cover their health insurance premium. And finally, a big bite in taxes. But even this doesn't tell the whole story, as you'll see in a moment. Because in fact, something else happened between 1999 and 2009. I'm sure many people in this room know. Back in 1999, it seems like it was so long ago, we were actually running a budget surplus. There was no deficit spending at the federal level for health care. Today, the federal government, or in 2009, the federal government took in $6 for every $10 it paid out. Some of that money went to health care. So if you include deficit spending, money that in effect the family was spending for health care, but it's going to the debt that their children and their grandchildren may have to pay back, that bite is even bigger. So if you consider the difference, the size of these two columns, gives you a sense of the kind of impact that healthcare spending is having on an American family's finances. Now let's take this to real numbers in the next place. What we found in the bottom line of our analysis was that when you factor in the income gain that a median income working family with employer-sponsored health insurance had at the end of 10 years. Now mind you, this is better than average because the average American family of four has a take-home pay less than the average or median American family that's lucky enough to work for an employer that gives them health insurance. This is actually about the 70th percentile for income among families of four. This is what happened. Total monthly income in 1999 for this median family, Ozzie and Harriet, two children, two parents, was $6,350. No price increase because this is our baseline number. Non-health related taxes, in other words, the tax part of the state and federal tax burden that did not go for health care, 1625. Healthcare spending took out another $970 a month out of their take-home pay, leaving them about $3,755 for other family priorities, paying the mortgage, car payments, clothes for the kids, groceries, savings for college, whatever their other priorities were. And again, net gain baseline will fill the cell in a moment. Now, fast forward just 10 years. Just 10 years. Now, we've got a much different picture. We've got $8,262 worth of monthly income. So, hey, that's great. But you know, inflation happens, and so some of that goes back in higher prices for gasoline, hamburgers, and other consumer items. But the real impact comes in healthcare spending, now up to $1,750. And mind you, this does not include the deficit spending. It would have been even higher, but remember, we had significant tax cuts that came online during this decade, so the tax bite was not as great as a percentage of income in 2009 as it was in 1999. But look out, here comes healthcare spending at over $1,700 per month for this average family, considering taxes and premiums above and below the waterline spending. And at the end of that, 
You've now got $3,850 in take-home pay for after a decade of hard work and income gain and everything that family, they now have an extra whopping $95 a month to spend on other priorities. So almost everything those families gained in 10 years was consumed by healthcare cost growth. And remember, this doesn't include the federal spending going to the deficit for healthcare that is in fact coming out of that family and every American family spending because it's adding to a debt that we are all gonna have to pay back sooner or later. You know it didn't have to be this way. And this is the challenge and I would say the opportunity really for all of us going forward. So here for starts is that same analysis but now looking on a monthly basis, not an annualized basis, on a monthly basis at the end of 10 years, our median income family had $95 a month extra to spend on other priorities. As a thought experiment, we said if we had only increased taxes enough not to pay for the full deficit, just to pay for spending on health care growth alone, the average American family would have lost $390 per month from where they were 10 years earlier. That's the impact of deficit spending on what we have to show. Now, what if, what if we had accomplished in the last 10 years the goal that we have set up for ourselves now, which is a growth of healthcare costs equal to the GDP plus 1%. That's the target for the Affordable Care Act. That was the rate of growth we had in the decade prior to 1999. At that year, that 10-year period, it grew about GDP plus one. And oh, by the way, GDP plus one was about what other high-income countries in the world did in the last 10 years. So it is not such a far-fetched idea. If we had had that, the average American family would have had $335 per month more to spend. Now, I'll tell you, I'm not a big fan of GDP plus one. The reason for that is because it just means the health care costs in this country are going to devour the U.S. economy, but more slowly. If you were a trauma patient or someone you love was in my ER and they were bleeding to death and I came out to meet with you and I said, I have good news, we've slowed down the rate of bleeding, you'd be kind of worried, wouldn't you? You'd say, but they're still bleeding. What are you going to do about that? Oh, don't worry, we've slowed it down. That's not good enough. If we were able to do something really magical and be able to hold healthcare cost growth to only the GDP, so it grew as fast as the other products and services, <clears throat> the average American family would have had $545 per month more to spend on other priorities. Let's take that to an annual figure because it's easier to get your arms around. If healthcare cost growth in the last 10 years had grown at the same rate of other products and services in the United States, our magical family of four in 2009 alone would have had an additional $5,400 to spend or save on other priorities. And I would ask you to think about what impact that might have had on the U.S. economy if those dollars could have been used in other ways than the purchase of healthcare services. So this is a very, very substantial opportunity and a very, very substantial challenge for our country. Now you could say in fairness, yeah, but what about all the great health we got for that? Didn't we, didn't we get value out of all that extra spending? Well, we kind of did. In the paper that we published in Health Affairs in September, David and I noted that over this decade, Americans made about 10% more office visits to doctors than they had 10 years earlier. 
They spent about as many days in the hospital. But they got a heck of a lot more MRI scans and they got twice as many CT scans. And in a lot of other measures, <clears throat> my fellow doctors and me did more stuff to or for patients in terms of intensity of service and the charges associated with that. But there isn't a lot of evidence that we really delivered substantially better health in the process. Now, you can say, but life expectancy got better, and it did. We added about a year on average to life expectancy of adults in the United States over this 10 years. Unfortunately, that's about half of the gain of life expectancy that those other high-income countries achieved while spending substantially less than we did. Study done in the middle of this decade by a RAND colleague of mine, Beth McGlynn, and others at RAND identified that Americans in this decade got recommended care, care that we know works, that the average American ought to get when you're at the doctor, whether it's preventive care or illness care, only 55% of the time. In other words, we are not consistently doing the basics the way we should, whether you're privately insured, publicly insured, or uninsured. If you're in front of a doctor, we often aren't getting you exactly what you need. And a number of studies have estimated that about 1,000 Americans are dying each week due to failure to get basic necessary indicated services. So $2.5 trillion, a huge impact on families' bottom lines, and yet we're not delivering the goods consistently the way we should as a healthcare delivery system. Now this analysis just came out from a RAND Europe colleague, Ellen Nolte, and her team updating an earlier analysis that looked at deaths that we know how to prevent. This was a way of comparing one country to another, not based on anecdotes or other things. They just said there are certain things that you shouldn't die from, at least not early, like diabetes or heart failure or high blood pressure or pneumonia caused by, a treat by bacteria that can be treated with prompt and effective antibiotics. And now everybody's got to go sometime, but we kind of like to delay that for a while if we can. And if you die prematurely from a treatable condition, it's a measure that maybe your country isn't doing quite what it should. And in this analysis, she compared the United States to a number of other high-income countries, Japan, countries in Western Europe, et cetera. And this has been done before. So this is the third time this team has examined this, and the United States once again came in dead last. And not only is it frustrating to see that we are bringing up the rear among countries that are relatively wealthy and have sophisticated healthcare systems like us, but what really aggravates me are that some of those countries that have substantially lower mortality rates, in fact, do spend substantially less money than we do, and yet have the same or better measures of access and healthcare delivery. So to me, as a physician, this really bothers me, and it should bother every healthcare professional in our country that we're not doing better than this. Now, again, let's be fair. One of the reasons why we don't do as well is not because we don't know how to practice good medicine. Of course we do, and as I said at the start, when we pull out the stops, no country on earth can match us. But too often we pull our punches, we hold back, we don't even let you get in the door because so many of our fellow citizens are uninsured. And that number in this decade grew by 10 million. Today, 50 million Americans lack health insurance. And there are striking differences in one part of the country and from one state to another in terms of the percentage of Americans that are uninsured. Now, we are a compassionate people. 
And we don't want to peop see people die in a gutter. And so we do, in fact, while there are those in Congress who will debate whether or not health care is a right in the United States or not, in fact, it is a right. But it's a right in only one singular setting in the United States, and that's the ER. That is the only place in the American healthcare system where if your life is on the line, we will not and we cannot turn you away or risk violating federal law. But that is not exactly the smartest or most effective way to run a healthcare system. And you could say, yeah, but it's really not that big a deal, but it is having an enormous economic and logistical impact on healthcare in the United States. This next analysis, and work with me for just a moment, tells the story as graphically as anything I know. This was actually in Health Affairs 12 months ago by Steve Pitts, Emily Carrier, Gene Rich, and I uh, from Emory, Mathematica, and Rand kind of teamed together on this analysis. And we looked at where do Americans get care from their doctor or another doctor. And we analyzed three federal data sets that together describe about one billion doctor encounters a year. About two-thirds of those are for chronic disease or well-baby checks, what we call non-acute care. But when you're sick or when your chronic disease is getting out of control or when you've got a new or scary symptom and you don't know what to do, where do you go? It turns out that Americans drive past or walk past their own doctor about half the time or more. Now, that top bar there shows three groups of American doctors. The big kind of purplish bar are specialists. We are unique among those other countries that I talked about earlier in that we have a higher percentage of specialists in our MD workforce than any of these other countries. Only about a third of our doctors are what we call primary care doctors, general medicine, family medicine, OBGYN, pediatrics. Four percent work primarily in emergency rooms. That four percent of America's physicians today give 28 percent of all the acute care given in the United States. They actually do 11% of all outpatient visits, but 28% of acute care visits, including almost all after hours and weekend treatment. But you know what? Those 4% of America's doctors give half of the acute care to Medicaid patients and to kids that are insured through the Children's Health Insurance Program. Half of the acute care visits by 4% of docs. And for the uninsured, those 4% of doctors are giving two-thirds of all the acute care given to the uninsured in this country by 4% of doctors, more than the other 96% of America's doctors combined. Now, if McDonald's gave away one out of every two hamburgers, you'd probably pay more if you went in there and had to pay for a burger. Same would go for the gas stations. So not only does this have a logistical impact on access to emergency care in our country, it has a real impact as well. So when your boss decries the high cost of emergency care, remember there's a reason for that. And in part, it's through this phenomenon of cost shifting and trying to cover care for the uninsured or people who can't pay enough by charging other or paying customers more. So why is there such a discrepancy? Uh, the, the biggest discrepancy is because, and we'll talk about this more in a minute, but Medicaid, the rates of reimbursement for Medicaid aren't attractive enough for many doctors to want Medicaid patients. And uh, I actually did a study many years ago with colleagues around the country where we actually got research assistants to pose as Medicaid patients. I know secret shoppers have a bad name in Washington these days. But we had research assistants call with an obviously minor but uncomfortable complaint. I have a really bad sore throat. 
or it, it burns when I pee, I think I might have a bladder infection, or I lifted a heavy bag and I, my back pulled and I'm having a lot of pain. And uh, we had the caller either say they had Medicaid or they, were un or they had insurance. And there were striking differences in what doctors, and many doctors said, we don't take Medicaid. And the most common advice to the caller that said, well, if you can't see me, where should I go, was either we don't give advice out over the phone or you ought to go to an ER. And that was a good 20 years ago. I think that's equally true or more so today. So the fact is, it's not that people are just kind of convenient shopping and walking past the doc to go to the ER. More often than not, it's because it's the only place open to them. It's the only place willing to see them. And that's a challenge. Now, the problem we've got today is that we really have a system without breaks. Um, everybody in the game, if you will, the incentive is to spend more rather than to spend less. Patients are by and large convinced that more care is always better care. A newer test is better than an older test. The new drug on the billboard or on television is better than the old drug. If you're telling me that I need a super scan versus a regular x-ray, you must be right. And Americans, by and large, have tremendous faith in the judgment of their physicians. If my doctor says I need it, I trust them. They gotta know what they're doing. And so Americans are, by and large, willing, and besides, for those of us lucky enough to have health insurance, it's okay, that's what I have insurance for. Insurance will pick up the tab. I'm sheltered in my mind from the cost. Although, as my analysis showed you earlier, no one is really sheltered from the cost. We're all bearing that burden ultimately. For docs, it's really simple. For docs like me and my colleagues around the country, the more we do, the more money we make. If you came to me in the ER and your, head, your child had a bonk on the head and they were fuzzy for a moment, now they're fine. If I get a CAT scan and I do a detailed exam and I order a bunch of blood work, I will make far more money. The hospital will make more money. I will be more productive, quote unquote, then if I sit there with you, mom or dad, and walk you through for 10 or 15 minutes why your child doesn't need that radiation dose to their brain, why they don't need any blood work, why a simple clinical exam and you keeping an eye on them for the next six or 12 hours is all they need. And in meanwhile, I'm also taking a greater risk because in that one in a thousand or one in 10,000 or one in 100,000 possibility that, that something was going on, the first thing you'll do is you'll go back and say if you'd only gotten that CAT scan. So the average American physician says to themselves, wait a minute, I can make more money and do better by testing and treating and doing lots of procedures, or I can do less, hurt my revenue, be judged by my hospital as being less productive, and, and potentially increase my risk of malpractice suits. That's not a very enticing arrangement for most American physicians. Hospitals are operating like airlines. They want to fill every bed. Empty beds mean lost revenue and fixed costs for a hospital. And they don't just want to fill a bed with a patient, they want to fill a bed with an elective admission who needs expensive procedures, who's been pre-vetted, we know their insurance is good, we know they can cover the co-pays, thank you, you can come in. Which helps explain the paradox today that we don't give the bed to the worst first. If you're desperately sick in an ER, even if you're privately insured, even if you've got Medicare, You'll get a bed when a bed turns up at two, three, four in the morning. The beds during the day are gonna be reserved for the elective admissions because that's where the margins are. It is a simple matter of economics. So it's not worst first. It's worst first in the ER, but it is not worst first for the next ICU bed or the next step down bed or the next inpatient bed. And finally, vendors, 
are really interested in new products. And we have an incredibly innovative health sector for drugs, for devices, for treatments. But again, today there's not a market for a disruptive technology that dramatically lowers costs. Because if you've got a widget that cuts the cost in half or a third, you probably can't even sell it. Who's going to want it? Because you're going to hurt the revenue stream. You're going to hurt a hospital's bottom line. There is very little market for technologies and drugs that dramatically lower cost. There's always a market for those that raise costs. And besides, if I can't get insurance to pay for it or Medicare to pay for it, I can always barrage members of Congress and get a bunch of patients to go to members of Congress and force Medicaid to pay. And once I get Medicare to pay, the private insurance industry will fall into line. So today, all of the incentives on the provider side are to raise costs, to raise prices, to raise revenue. Well, what about the payers? The payer side of the game is how can I avoid paying? The federal government, they have two basic approaches. One is let's just pay less. So we'll cap Medicare reimbursement or we'll cut Medicaid reimbursement. And by doing that, in effect, they are shifting the burden to private health insurance and to those employees. It's one of the reasons why health insurance premiums go up. If the public payer pays less, and you've got costs, they're going to seek it someplace else. State governments, let's face it, folks, state governments are brilliant at figuring out how to do provider taxes and other recycling schemes over the years to pull more Medicaid money down to the states, more dish money down to the states. So how can we game the system to get the federal government to pay more so the states pay less, or we'll limit eligibility for Medicaid, or we'll pay our doctors and nurses less, and again, they're just going to have to eat it, and so the costs are transferred either upstream to the federal government or downstream to hospitals and providers. For employers, they've taken an approach, again, pragmatic. I'm going to take more of my employees and offshore these jobs because then I don't have to pay their benefits. We'll let their government worry about it. Or I'll have people tell, you know, uh, I'll make them part-time or we'll hire consultants instead of regular people so we don't have to pay benefits and I can reduce the number of employees that have health insurance. Or I will increase the co-pays and the deductibles so that the employee has to take on a greater share and my costs are reduced. And insurers, hey, what happened this year? 9% increase in premiums in a year when the economy is struggling to stay above the trees. Or We'll just delay when we write the check to pay the doctor or the hospital, or we'll figure out how we can deny the claim. So everybody's got stake in trying to avoid picking up the bill. So think about it. On one hand, the providers have every incentive today to try to raise prices and raise charges. And payers are trying to avoid payment and shift that bill around the table to somebody else around the table rather than having to pick it up themselves. Nobody is tackling the underlying problem, which is cost. And until we do that, until we get at how much health care costs, all of the fighting and screaming going on in Washington today about the federal role or the state role or the employer's role or the individual's role is almost meaningless because at the end of the day, we pay. We pay out of pocket. We pay with our employer. We pay through our taxes but we can't hide from the cause. We've got to reduce costs. And there are only three basic ways to do that. One of them is 
we can provide the same care and simply pay less for it and hope that the provider community goes along. And that's more or less the strategy that's been done by Medicare and Medicaid now for a number of years. And it's a strategy that other governments use regularly. They set global budgets and they just say in country A, B, or C, this is all you're going to get. This is not a tractable solution in the United States by and large. And remember, there's only one place in the healthcare system where you're guaranteed to get care anyway. And so doctors can simply say, we're not going to play. You cut again, we're out of there. And I've seen in my practice career a greater and greater willingness on the part of doctors to simply say, you know what, I'm not coming in. I'm not going to see that patient. No, I'm not interested in following them up if they can't pay me. So this is not a viable The other problem with this strategy, and if you go back and look at the numbers, you'll see as we have cut reimbursement for certain procedures, what have doctors done? They've just done more of them. They've made it up in volume. And so if you pay a neurosurgeon less for back operations and they double the number of back surgeries they're doing, they're maintaining their income, but all the associated costs for the anesthesia, the hospital bed, the procedures are added on top of the bill. So the pay them less strategy across the board doesn't work very well. The second strategy is we can just give less care. We can ration. Now that's a dirty word in Washington, but it's a fact of life. And today in the United States, we ration care explicitly and harshly. We simply ration based on the ability to pay or your insurance company's willingness to pay. That is the way we make those decisions, not based on need, not based on benefit, but based on whether or not the bill will be covered. The third way we could do it, and the one that I think has the greatest promise, is we can actually just reduce the stuff that doesn't work. If we eliminate wasteful care and ineffective care, and even marginal care that is of unclear value, we can save an enormous amount of money without, not only without compromising people's health, improving people's health. Because too much care isn't a wash. Too much care can hurt people. It produces hospital-acquired infections. It causes complications. It engenders side effects, which in turn cause additional costs. And there's two basic ways we can do it. One, which is pretty popular these days, is we can get patients to act more like consumers by giving them skin in the game. This is the whole idea of high-deductible health plans and consumer savings accounts. And RAND has done some of the most important work in recent years looking at the impact of what has happened when employers have offered employees these high-deductible plans. And you know what? They substantially reduce their spending, partly by seeing the doctor less often and partly by making smarter choices. But there may be a cloud around the silver lining, and that is there is some evidence that they're also skimping on appropriate care. And so this is something we really need to watch carefully. The other way we could do it is to motivate doctors and hospitals and nurses and people to be smarter about what they do and really focus on what works and not push a lot of stuff that doesn't and have a real financial incentive in delivering value, not volume and make the right call on that CT scan for your child or that back surgery that you may or may not really benefit from and many, many other opportunities. And this can really add up. The IOM alone estimates that today the United States healthcare system per year is burning $750 billion. Now, I don't know about you, but I think we could use that money for other things. 
for other priorities, starting with deficit reduction, but there are many national priorities where we could use $750 tomorrow. It would sure make people get along a lot better up here and around the country. And this is not for stuff that really matters. It's for unnecessary inefficient services, excessive administrative costs, high prices, medical fraud, and missed opportunities for prevention. Now, if you don't want to believe the IOM, just look inside the United States. We have the top performing one-fifth of regions of the U.S. have health care costs about a third lower than more poorly performing parts of the country. If you look at those other competing nations that we go head-to-head -head with on the global economy, their health care costs are about a third less than ours. If you look at my colleague Bob Brook, who did the original work on appropriateness of care, the RAND-UCLA appropriateness method suggests that about a third of the care we give in this country is inappropriate. So by multiple measures, we all come out at the same place. And friends, one-third of $2.5 trillion a year is real money. And it's money that we can realize and not hurt anybody, actually improve people's care and save money for other national priorities. Bill Fagey, who was once the director of the CDC and a real giant in the field of public health, took a line from a, a, a former comedian, Sam Levinson, and said, you know, it's not hard to be brilliant. All you have to do is think of something stupid and do the opposite. Well, as an old ER doc and a public health practitioner prior to coming to the top health policy research shop in America, I can tell you it's stupid to have a country healthcare system built where two-thirds of the docs are high-priced specialists and only a third do primary care. And where we have nurse practitioners and other healthcare professionals who can do a superb job with primary care delivery, and yet we restrict their ability to do that on a state-by-state -state basis through scope of practice and other restrictions when people are begging for access to basic care. And basic care saves tons of money, delivers good health, and states that have stronger health primary care systems have lower costs and healthier populations. It's stupid to reward super expensive, high-priced technological procedures and pay the price before you've even got evidence that it's any better than how we did it before. And yet we as a nation are unique in our willingness to pay far higher prices for drugs, for devices, for surgical procedures, long before we've got the credible evidence that the benefits are worth the price. And when insurance companies balk, or when Medicare balks, we knuckle down, twist their arm, and force them to pay, and then we wring our hands about how expensive the healthcare system is. Instead of incentivizing and motivating American ingenuity to produce value instead of higher prices. It's stupid to ignore the impact on health in future generations by taking our eye off the ball on things like childhood obesity, adolescent smoking, and other risk factors, or, God forbid, not consistently and effectively immunizing every child in America from readily preventable diseases. It's stupid to ignore the power of public health and the tremendous return on investment we can get, and we are decimating public health in the United States today, particularly at the state and local level. And finally, it's stupid to ignore the moral, spiritual, clinical, and financial issues around care at the end of life. And I was asked recently at a talk, a community address in Santa Monica by an elderly disabled person, I'm concerned that what you're advocating is rationing. I said, no, sir, I'm advocating that you're the boss and you deserve to make decisions about what you think matters in your life between you and your doctor. 
and where you want to say enough is enough and how you want to spend your final days. You deserve no less in this country. And we have to be willing to have that kind of dialogue and American medicine will say hallelujah. And again, this is a matter of value and a matter of social justice. And it's one that we really need to have the comfort and willingness to do by allowing patients to make choices that are informed and engaged for themselves and the people that they love. RAND has done substantial work on all of these issues and we're prepared to do more. The original RAND health insurance experiment was the largest health service research study ever done in our country and showed the value of copay and giving people some stake in decisions about their spending. We did early groundbreaking work on quality of care and value. We were the first major shop to weigh the economic costs of poor health habits, smoking, motor vehicle crashes, and bad nutrition many years ago. We have identified appropriate versus inappropriate care using the UCLA RAND appropriateness criteria that Bob Brook pioneered. We've done a number of studies on best evidence for everything from drug allergies to treatment of middle ear infections in kids. We were the ones who did the original and most powerful analysis of the value case for health information technology. We did the Future Care of the Elderly study that helped people understand what will happen in the future in terms of Medicare costs as boomers continue to enter the Medicare population and what will that mean for health payment and costs in this country. We've done landmark work in military health policy, notably the work on invisible wounds of war and bringing the whole issue of PTSD to the front. Now the impact that military families are bearing, not just the returning warrior, but the families and the children at home and many other issues. And we're prepared to partner with the Department of Defense going forward to help them with their cost issue, which is one of the greatest threats to readiness and force in this country if we don't get our hands around it. We developed COMPARE, the most sophisticated and transparent micro-simulation model for predicting and projecting the economic and coverage consequences of going forward with, repealing, modifying, or whatever you want, the Affordable Care Act or any other major health policy. It's a way of looking down the road and seeing where the car is going before you get there. And we, as I mentioned earlier, we are now doing the most sophisticated analytical work in partnership with 60 of the nation's biggest and most influential employers and health insurance plans to look at how do high deductible health plans influence spending decisions and healthcare behavior of consumers, something everybody in this room and the offices you represent wants to know about, this and many more. And as Wynn said, we do it with one commitment and one commitment only, which is the truth. We don't lobby. We don't represent a political party. We are strictly nonpartisan. We don't serve the industry. Our mission is to give objective analysis and effective solutions to help the country. That's what we're about. That's what led me to walk out of that ER in a tenured position at one of the nation's top medical schools to come to RAND because I wanted to be a part of a team that's committed to the solution and not to defending the status quo. So the bottom line, it's always good to have a bottom line to a sermon. It's this, healthcare cost growth is the problem. Right now, everybody in DC, everybody across the street is fighting about who and how we'll pay. We need to get at the underlying problem, which is why does American healthcare cost so damn much? And what are we gonna do about it that's smart, effective, and practical to serve our country? It's not only eating up the federal budget, it's not only hindering Americans' business ability to compete, 
on the global economy, it is wiping out the income gains of middle class Americans. That's wrong. We can do better. We have to do better. And very importantly, remember, the average American family doesn't see most of their spending. It's below the waterline. They only see the part that's coming out of the pay stub or coming out of their pocket, but they're paying far more than that every month, every year. Second, there's enough money in the system right now to give everybody the care they need and better health. But the incentives, and I am a big believer in capitalism and incentives, the incentives are not aligned to produce that. The incentives are aligned to raise ever more spending, grow prices, and cherry pick patients who will be the most profitable. It's nobody's fault, it's just the way the incentives are engineered. There are opportunities there to unleash ingenuity and American capitalism if we get the incentives right and figure out how to reward value instead of volume. So that ends the sermon. I appreciate your time and attention. I look forward to answering any questions that you have. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.